Once again, good morning. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 8? If you're new with us, we welcome you. We are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. Working through it verse by verse, we come to John 8 this morning. And actually, John 8 uh, begins with the last verse of chapter 7. So you back up to verse 53 of John 7. It says, And everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now, John chapter 7 closes after a tumultuous day in the temple, where Jesus, Jesus had publicly declared himself the living water for the thirsty soul, the only one that can give everlasting life. We see in chapter 7, verses 37 to 38, he sa it says, On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The last day, the great day of the feast, refers to the final day of the seven-day feast of tabernacles. Tabernacles, as we said, takes place in late September, early October of our calendar, which means it was now fall in Israel roughly six months before Jesus' crucifixion. All the way through his ministry, pretty much his enemies had been simmering in their hatred towards Jesus. But now, the scribes, Pharisees, chief priests, their hatred had reached a full boil. And they had at this point committed themselves to his death by whatever means possible. As the feast was progressing, a seven-day feast, as it was progressing there in the temple area, Jesus began teaching at one point, and the people were responding to his message, a message of eternal life through him, of course. And uh, the result was the crowds were growing. Now that made Jesus' enemies extremely uncomfortable. And so they dispatched the temple police to arrest him before too many people became convinced that he was indeed the Messiah. So the temple police went to arrest him. They came back empty-handed. Look at verse 45 of John 7. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of, you, any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. So these guys went to arrest Jesus, started listening to what he had to say, got so enamored with the message they forgot to arrest him. Came back empty-handed. But that was pretty much how that day ended. The previous day, with Jesus' enemies wanting to destroy him, while the crowds were kind of debating among themselves, was he really the Messiah or just a deceiver? Look at chapter 7, verse 12. Well, the crowds eventually went home for the night, but it says in chapter 8, verse 1, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, no doubt to spend the night in prayer and in communion with his Father. We know from the Gospels that as we, have, we move into the last six months of his life before the cross, he is going to spend more and more sleepless nights in prayer, preparing himself for what was coming. So verse 2, now early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. You know, there's something special about getting up early to spend time with the Lord. 
the quietness and serenity of, I don't know, the early morning is especially conducive to hearing his voice and having fellowship with him as these folks learn firsthand. They had made the effort to get up early and go to the temple to worship God. Remember now, the day before, the seven-day Feast of Tabernacles ended. But the eighth day, the day after, was known as Shemi Atzeret, which is a high holy day. Uh, first day of the Feast of Tabernacles and the eighth day were considered Sabbaths, high holy Sabbaths. And so folks got up early to come to the temple and uh, worship God. And uh, as they desired to seek God, they were rewarded. Some of if you desire to seek God, and some about the morning again, and seek Him early before you start your day, I'm convinced He will reward you in some way. You'll get to know Him in a deeper way. These folks wanted to worship God. They came to the temple uh, early and were rewarded by hearing the voice of God, literally, audibly, in the person of Jesus Christ, as He taught them the Word of God. What would it be like? to have Jesus teach a Bible study, right? I always admire the two disciples on the road to Emmaus the, the afternoon after the resurrection, how he met, met them. They know it was Jesus right away, but, but he taught them, opened their eyes, opened their understanding to the Scriptures, right? Someday, I believe, of course, when we see him face to face, he will teach us the Word. And uh, until that time, you're going to have to put up with me. But that's coming, okay? Something to look forward to. Uh, big deal. Uh, anyways, so, um, so a very peaceful, serene uh, atmosphere, you know, early morning, peaceful, um, people with a heart to, to worship God. They're listening to God incarnate teach the word. Just beautiful, a peaceful scene. Suddenly, though, was disrupted uh, by a very ugly confrontation. Verse 3, then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. What do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. The scribes copied the law. This was the guys before the copy machines were invented, the printing press and so on. Uh, they copied the law meticulously, the, word, the whole Word of God, uh, especially the law. But they would uh, copy it, not word by word, but letter by letter. And they had a whole system whereby they could check a page to make sure all the letters added up, because the Hebrew, the letters have numerical equivalent. So they would uh, had a system, they knew uh, the uh, total uh, for each page. If there was all the letters were there, what it would add up to, and if they added up to that, they knew that was good. They had they'd copied it exactly perfectly. If it didn't add up, they'd burn it and start over. That was a reverence for the Word of God. It didn't matter how much effort they put in. They only wanted to make sure they got the Word correct. They cut, the new copy was perfect to the old. So they copied the law. They interpreted, as because they, they were always in the words, they interpreted what God meant when He said these things. And, of course, they taught it uh, to the people. The Pharisees were the extreme legalists of the day, very self-righteous men who thought that they kept the law, and only they kept the law, by the way, uh, the law of Moses. And uh, these two groups, guys, were so revered in Israel, the scribes and Pharisees, that the Jews had a saying, if only two people made it into heaven, 
One would be a scribe, the other would be a Pharisee. The people thought they were about as holy men of God as you could possibly get. Of course, Jesus saw something else going on in their hearts. Both groups were utterly blind to their own hypocrisy, but Jesus knew it. You can read Matthew 20, uh, 23. Eight times he blasts them for being hypocrites and so on. But here they are, okay? And uh, they come to Jesus with a loaded question designed to trap him. And they thought to use the very law, the finger of God had written on tablets of stone so many years earlier, they thought to use the very law against Jesus. Written with the finger of God. Pulled onto that. Before we go on, let me uh, supply some historical context to this passage. And that is to say that at this time in Israel, adultery was so rampant that the Sanhedrin never even bothered with it. Sanhedrin being the Jewish high council. Uh, it was their job to uphold the law. And of course, the law in mind was the law of Moses. And, um, but it was so rampant. Uh, adultery, and no doubt other sins, but adultery was so rampant that the Sanhedrin didn't even bother to deal with it. In fact, history records that many of the Jewish religious leaders themselves were involved in continual adulterous relationships. And so because they were involved in these kind of things, they dared not bring it up and make an issue out of it in somebody else's life. However, that didn't stop them from trying to now use it as an issue to trap Jesus with. Now, it was true. According to the law of Moses, they did have legal grounds to condemn this woman because in Leviticus 20, verse 10, God had commanded that a man and woman involved in adultery should be put to death by stoning. You say, that's pretty harsh. Well, God looked upon adultery as a very serious sin because it destroyed the basic unit of society, the family. And so these men did have a case from a legal standpoint, to, to condemn this woman to death, except for one small problem. Where was the man? Where, where was the man? In the law, God said that both the man and the woman guilty of adultery were to be put to death. So if they caught this woman, verse 4, in the very act, where's the guy? This has led many to believe that Jesus' enemies had paid some man to lure this woman into an adulterous situation where they could break in and catch her in the very act so they could use her as bait to trap Jesus. Again, notice verses 5 and 6. They said to him, Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. Guys, these men were not concerned about the law of God or what was right or wrong. They were hypocrites, all right? They came across looking like very holy, pious men, zealous for God's law. When it suited their purposes, they would violate the law all day long, and they did in their own lives, most of it in their own hearts. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But guys, they weren't concerned about the law of God or what was right or wrong. I mean, she was only a means to an end a pawn in their wicked plan to trap and kill Jesus. Her life was meaningless to them. All she was was a warm piece of flesh to be used to accomplish their evil purposes. Many commentators believe that she was dragged naked from her home through the streets of Jerusalem and made to stand in front of Jesus in the crowd in that condition. 
Can you imagine how she must have felt? Her humiliation must have been beyond belief. Not only that, not only was she humiliated, she was also no doubt filled with anxiety and great fear. Because she, being a Jewess, no doubt knew that the penalty for adultery was stoning. And so she stood there, naked and afraid, before the crowd and, unbeknownst to her, the God of the universe, whom the Bible calls the righteous judge of all the earth, the Lord Jesus Christ. She stood before God and man, waiting to hear her sentence. I believe the crowd at that very moment was already beginning to pick up stones to kill her. Not everybody. But you always have some in the crowd that think they're so righteous, I'm going to let this gal have it, right? And I believe that there was probably a good number of people in that crowd that were already picking up stones to kill her, just waiting for Jesus to give them the green light to finish her off and remove this guilty sinner from their midst, as if they were so righteous. But I mean, she was guilty, right? That wasn't even a dispute. They caught her in the very act. I can just hear the crowd yelling to the Lord. Just give us the word, Jesus, and we'll end her miserable life. Now, Jesus' enemies, were, they set this whole thing up. They were standing there, um, taking all of this in. And must have been beside themselves with gleeful, perverted joy. Soaking in every second of this scene. You see, they believed they had caught Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. And he had no way out. Or at least they thought. Look, they knew how compassionate and kind he was towards sinners. I mean, they all flocked to his ministry. So much of his ministry was made up of the very people the scribes and Pharisees routinely held in contempt. You know, that basket of deplorables we hear about. These were the tax collectors, the prostitutes, and other assorted sinners. I mean, if the scribes and Pharisees had their way, they would be all removed from the earth. These were the guys who were so self-righteous that when they walked through a town, they pulled their robes tight to their bodies, lest the wind should cause it to flap up against some sinner, and they would be defiled by this sinner's life. They hated people. They only loved themselves. But they were observant of Jesus. They studied him. And they knew Jesus had a soft spot in his heart for these reprobates and outcasts. Why? They couldn't figure it out. But they knew he had a soft spot in his heart for sinners. He was a friend of sinners. And now they hoped to use that very thing against him. You see, their plan was to bring a woman to him who had been caught in the act of adultery. That's a serious sin, no doubt about it. And one worthy of death according to the law. If Jesus had ruled in her favor and said, you know, don't stone her, let her go. They could accuse him of coming against the law of Moses and encouraging others to live contrary to it. That would have been grounds for the Sanhedrin to arrest him as a lawbreaker. Because again, they were charged with keeping the law in Israel. 
And certainly, if Jesus had said, let her go, I don't condemn her, let her go, they would have thought he was a lawbreaker, a rebel, advocating the breakdown of Jewish society by, by promoting immorality, adultery of all things, which would have destroyed Jewish families and so on, the very fabric of society, but also would have alienated him from those who revered the law, and they would have turned against him. If, on the other hand, he would have said, yes, she must be stoned, kill her. Well, his reputation as the friend of sinners would have been ruined. And uh, that would have caused the common man who made up the bulk of his ministry to turn away from him and follow him no more. So, guys, either way, these wicked men thought they had Jesus cold. They thought they had outsmarted the Lord of glory. Now, I will say this. The problem Jesus was confronted with on that day went far beyond this woman and her accusers. It is a problem that touches all of us. In fact, it was and is the most profound moral problem in the history of mankind. And that is, how does a holy, righteous God show mercy to sinners? In other words, how can the mercy and justice of God come together in harmony towards the fallen family of Adam? Whether you know it or not, that is the greatest moral dilemma in the universe. The greatest moral dilemma in the universe. How can God show mercy to fallen man by not sending sinners to hell and still be true to his word, the word that said the soul that sins shall surely die? How can a righteous God ever make peace with unrighteous sinners so as to enter into fellowship with them? Well, of course, the answer is the cross, isn't it? The cross. And I believe the psalmist in Psalm 85, verse 10, was looking forward to the cross when he said these words, Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. At the cross of Christ, justice and mercy kissed in perfect harmony in that God's justice was satisfied. Sin had been paid for. And that gave God a basis for extending mercy and forgiveness to all mankind. God himself bore our sins on that cross, demonstrating that in that one act, he was a just God. Sin had to be paid for, but also a loving God and that he paid for our sin himself. Peter put it this way, 1 Peter 2.24, who himself, Jesus Christ, bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. It reminds me of a story I heard several years ago about a king of a tribe in South America, and uh, they lived in a village, and in the center of town there was a communal chicken pen, and the whole village ate from the chickens in this pen. Uh, it really helped all of them to survive, right? Well, one day it came to the king's attention that somebody had been stealing chickens from the communal pen. This went on for a while, 
And the king issued a command, a judgment saying, the person who is caught, having done this, will receive 30 lashes. Well, a few days later, they caught the thief. It was the king's own mother, an elderly, frail woman. Now, the village was in an uproar. What was the king going to do? I mean, if he's a righteous king, he can't just let her go. I mean, he wouldn't let anybody else go, right? But if he did mete out the punishment and she got the 30 lashes, she would die at the scourging post. She, she could never, at the whipping post, she could never survive that. So the day was set for everyone to come together where the sentence would be, uh, where the uh, verdict would be given and the sentence carried out. This little gal, again, old, frail woman, was brought and tied to the whipping post. The king sitting on his throne in his royal robes, the robes that allowed him, that uh, spoke of his kingship and the fact that he was a judge, the judge of this people. And the king from his throne made the decree. She must, she is guilty and she must be punished with 30 lashes. Everyone gasped. They knew she could never survive that. Before the men who had the whips in their hands could carry out that sentence. The king stood up, took off his royal robes, exposing his bare chest and back, went over to where his mom was chained to the whipping post, wrapped his arms and body around her, and told the men, go ahead, start lashing. He literally demonstrated this very principle that our Lord Jesus Christ demonstrated more poignantly and powerfully than any human could. Because in the Garden of Eden, when man sinned, Adam and Eve sinned for all of us. We're all of the family of Adam. And God, on his royal throne from heaven, pronounced the human race guilty. And sentenced us to death. 4,000 years later, he took off his royal robes, became a man, and went to the cross, first of all, enduring the whipping, the scourging, and then was nailed to the cross, dying in our place. So these men brought this gal to Jesus, with all their self-righteousness. So we caught this woman in the very act of adultery. Moses in the law says she should be stoned. What do you say, Jesus, friend of sinners? What are you going to do here? But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger. That's very important you understand that. Holy Spirit made it a point to say Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground in the dirt with his he didn't pick up a stick or a twig. He wrote with his finger as though he did not hear. Verse 7. So when they continued asking him, the Greek, as they were badgering him, what about it? What about it? What do you say? What do you have to say, Jesus? Come on. Come on. What is it? Come on. Let us know. Shut up. You know. They just continued badgering him. And he raised himself up at one point and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. 
it's uh, very interesting how Jesus handled this situation. His enemies thought they had him in an iron-clad trap, and so they kept badgering him to make a judgment as to what they should do with her. It's interesting, he didn't answer their question directly, did he? He didn't try to defend the woman. He didn't argue the law of Moses with them. He simply turned the whole thing around and directed it at them. Jesus was basically laying down for them and for all of us the qualification for judging another. Sinless perfection. Now, please don't misunderstand. Okay, please. We just read in John 7.24 last week how Jesus said to these very men, don't judge by outward appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So obviously, he's not saying that all judgment is forbidden. Christians will use that. Matthew 7, 1. Judge not lest you be judged. And so they think that excuses them from judging anybody, that it's wrong to make any judgment. Well, Paul told Timothy, the young pastor, teach the word faithfully and reprove, rebuke, correct, instruct with all long-suffering and doctrine. You can't rebuke, reprove, or correct if you don't make a judgment about the way somebody is living. That wasn't the issue. It's not wrong to go to somebody you love or care about and say, look, uh, you know, you're, 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 you claim to be a Christian, but you're living in sin. And I love you too much to let you go on like this. God loves you way more than me. I want you to get it right with him so he can bless you and use your life. That's not wrong. You see, her guilt was already determined. The Holy Spirit took that right off the table. She was guilty. She was caught in the very act. This was a judicial judgment that's in view here. A judgment that would cost her her life is the idea. And I believe what Jesus is teaching us through this, the Holy Spirit, only a person who is perfect is qualified to throw stones in another in the sense of passing final judgment upon their lives as being irredeemable. You have to understand who Jesus was talking to here who he was confronting, the scribes and Pharisees, the ultimate religionists and, and hypocrites. These were the men who didn't think a woman like this could be redeemed. They definitely didn't think Gentiles could be redeemed. They even taught that God only made Gentiles to fuel the fires of hell. They were absolutely unredeemable. But if you know the Pharisees and scribes, you know that basically they only thought they themselves were getting into heaven, their group. They hated everybody else. They certainly hated sinners, couldn't understand why Jesus wanted to be around them all the time or why they wanted to be around him. Well, because he gave them hope. I mean, the Pharisees and scribes basically made people think, if you don't keep the law as perfectly as us, you're never going to see heaven. Well, of course, most people could never do it like they did it. They were zealous. So they thought these tax collectors and prostitutes especially, and even a gal like this, they thought, you know, there's no hope for us. But here comes Jesus. Don't listen to these guys. You know, if, you, if, you're, if you're weary and heavy laden by all the burdens the Pharisees and scribes are laying on you, come to me. Believe on me. I'm the living water that will quench your thirsty soul. I'm the bread of life that will give you eternal life. He gave them hope and they flocked to him. Because people need hope. 
But these guys, they didn't care about anybody but themselves. And again, they thought she was hopelessly lost, irredeemable. Jesus is not saying that, look, we can't call sin, sin, and confront people with it if need be. But we can't condemn them to hell because they are not measuring up to the standard we have set for ourselves. There's a lot of Christians, forget the Jewish people, there's a lot of Christians in churches throughout America that have a list of things that you have to adhere to if you're going to get into heaven. Depending on the group, the list gets pretty long. Maybe you've heard of some of these. Uh, guys, you wear your hair a little too long, you're going to hell. Women, your skirt's a little too short, you're going to hell. You smoke, you drink wine once in a while and have a beer, you're going to hell. You go to the movies, you're out, you know? Dances? Oh my goodness, don't even let me go there. And based on their list, just like the scribes and Pharisees had their own little list, these people were condemned when they did that, those kinds of things. That's the issue that Jesus Christ is coming against. Look, when we make a judgment of somebody that they're guilty of committing a sin against God because of the way they're living, that's okay. If we do it out of love to either pray for them or lovingly confront them so they get their life right with God and get blessed again, that's fine. But if we go around like the scribes and Pharisees and look down at everybody that doesn't measure up to my standard, they're going to hell. God doesn't love them. God can't save them. They're hopelessly lost. Well, that's the very thing we are commanded we can't do in Scripture. Listen to what he said here. He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. You may not know this, but in the law it said that the accusers of a person found guilty of a capital crime were to throw the first stones. Of course, it assumed you weren't guilty of that same sin, right? Adulterers can't kill adulterers. Murderers can't kill. You know, the idea was you, not perfect, but you weren't guilty of that same sin. That's what the law said. If you brought charges against somebody in a capital crime and they were convicted, you as the one who accused them were to cast the first stones. The Greek word for without sin, see it there? He who is without sin among you is the Greek word anamartetas and literally means to be without the desire to sin. To be without the desire to sin. It's important to note that Jesus took sin out of the realm of the outward actions of a person's life and applied it, listen, also to the inward attitudes of their heart. We see this very clearly in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Uh, Matthew 5 to 7, but Matthew chapter 5, Jesus taught very clearly that God not only looks at the actions of our lives, but also the attitudes of our hearts when it comes to sin. That's why he said to the Pharisees and scribes, you guys have never committed, well, many of them had, but uh, many of them had not committed murder physically or adultery. But Jesus says, that's, that's not good enough. You think you're righteous because you've never committed the act. God sees your hearts. If you lust after a woman in your heart, in the eyes of God, you've already committed adultery with her. If you harbor hatred in your heart for somebody, in the eyes of God, you've already committed murder. Because God doesn't only look at the outward actions, he looks at the inward attitudes. 
is the idea. The hypocrisy of, this, of these men was breathtaking in that they made an issue out of her sin and wanted to use her sin to trap Jesus but were completely blind to the hatred in their own hearts that made them guilty of murder in the eyes of God. Beware of self-righteousness. Beware of self-righteousness. It often grows slowly and imperceptibly in a person's heart. And you'll know it's there because it will make you incredibly perceptive to the sins of others while incredibly blind to your own sins. That was the scribes and Pharisees to a T. You see, guys, the issue here wasn't so much her guilt that was obvious. The Holy Spirit tells us that right up front. She was guilty. Okay? She's, so, you know, she wasn't a good person that, you know, she was a guilty sinner. Standing before the righteous judge of all the earth. That's the imagery the Holy Spirit is painting here. The real issue that Jesus is emphasizing in this story is that, look, sinners don't have a right to be judges over other sinners condemning them to hell. Because they're not in my group, you know? They don't measure up to my standard of what I believe is required to get into heaven. Let me read to you. In fact, you can t- turn there, Romans 2. I'll read to you verses 1 to 3 out of the NLT, second edition. Because Paul the Apostle nails this very thing. And he wrote chapter 2 of Romans, uh, in part, to the religionists in the Jewish culture and how self-righteous they were, always looking down at the sins of others but totally blind to their own sins. And so Paul nails them. He said, you may think you can condemn such people, what, that don't measure up to my standards, but you are just as bad and you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished in hell, you are condemning yourself. For you, for you who judge others do these very same things. Well, if not openly in your heart. Verse 2, And we know that God in his justice will punish anyone who does such things. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same things? The old Chinese proverb, be careful when you point a finger at someone, you've got three pointing back at you. So Jesus turns the tables. Oh, he was a master of spiritual jujitsu. Oh, it was wonderful. How he always turned the tables on these guys, right? Instead of they thought he, they had him, right? Caught him on the horns of a dilemma. We got him now. All of a sudden he and then they're caught, right? Instead of passing judgment on the woman, he passes judgment on the judges. What do you say, Jesus? We caught her in the very act. Moses said that she should be stoned. What do you say? Seeking to trap him. End of verse 6. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger. As though he did not hear. They kept badgering. What do you say? What do you say? What do you say? Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now, guys, what Jesus wrote on the ground with his finger, we are not told. Commentaries have filled shelves for centuries telling us exactly what Jesus wrote on the ground there. 
We don't really know, but I'm going to venture my opinion. Okay? The Greek word, and he wrote on the ground, the Greek word is katagraphein. And it literally means to write against. To write against. I believe what Jesus was doing was writing their names in the dirt. Starting from the oldest to the youngest. And next to each of their names, you know, Matthew, uh, Joseph, you know, Zebulun, you know, writing some of the sins they themselves had committed, you know, uh, sins that each of them had uh, committed against the law of God, written in the dirt with the finger of God. The same finger that wrote the law on tablets of stone 1,500 years earlier and then gave them to Moses to give them to the children of Israel, Exodus 31, 18. The very finger of God. They were going to use the law against him to trap him? <laughs> I wrote the law. Verse 9, then those who heard it, interesting, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one. Let me just stop you there. Uh, a lot of commentators reject that uh, interpretation or that uh, you know, that I just gave you, that Jesus wrote in the ground some of their sins, because it says right here, those who heard it were convicted. Well, that shoots that out of the water. No, it doesn't. What did God, with his own finger, 1,500 years earlier in tablets of stone, what language did he write his law on those tablets in? Hebrew. By this time, Hebrew was a pretty much a dead language, only spoken by the priests and Levites. The common people didn't even know Hebrew. They couldn't read it or write it. Most of them spoke Greek or Aramaic. So the very finger of God that wrote the law 1,500 years earlier on tablets of stone now writes in Hebrew, I believe, in the dirt. And somebody standing there knew the Hebrew and was translating it. And so when each person heard what the accusation was, uh-oh, I think my wife wanted me to get some milk. i got to go, guys. Uh, <laughs> see you later. And they began to peel off one by one. Beginning with the oldest, even to the last. It says in verse 9, the latter part, And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. Look, conviction does one of two things to a person, guys. It either drives them to Christ or drives them away from Christ. You know, often people come to church. And if it's a good church that's teaching the word, they hear the word of God taught, and they begin to squirm, don't they? Some of these folks fidget. Look at their watch. Can't wait to get out of there. And once they do get out of there, they never want to come back. Others hear the word of God and are broken. And all they can think about is coming up after the service to get their life right with God. It's the same conviction. Same conviction. But it has two different effects depending on the heart it's subjected to. Just like the same sun will melt wax but harden clay, the same conviction of the Spirit from the Word of God will either soften a heart to the point of brokenness and surrender, or somebody is determined to keep sinning, are going to dig in, and their hearts will get hardened evermore. Let's finish, verses 10 and 11. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, 
Where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus is saying that sinlessness is the only thing that qualifies a person to condemn another to hell. I don't know about you, but that puts me out of the stone-throwing business for good. Look, next time you pick up stones to throw at somebody because they haven't measured up, because they're weak and have stumbled, next time you pick up stones to throw at somebody, remember what group that associates you with. There are many powerful lessons we could glean from this passage. I'll just pull one out. That Jesus, I believe, was teaching us through this story. And that is that God treats sinners with mercy, grace, and forgiveness. Listen, while they're still alive on this planet. The only one that had the right to throw a stone that day didn't. The only one who was the right to condemn us is Jesus, but he isn't. John 3, 17 and 18, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. In the Garden of Eden, sentence was passed. We were guilty, and all we're waiting for now is to have the the, uh, verdict was passed, sentence carried out. Eternal separation from God. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus entered this world on a search and rescue mission. As I said, he bore our stripes and our penalty on his cross because he loved us so much and didn't want to see us perish in hell. In fact, we see it come through in this story. Jesus looked at this guilty sinner with such love in his eyes, he called her woman. The same Greek word he used in chapter 2 to address his own mother by. Gune. Gune. It was a term of deep respect. Not a degrading or derogatory term. I mean, here was a woman standing before him naked. And folks, someday we'll all stand before Jesus Christ naked. Hebrews 4.13. All things are naked and open in the eyes of him to whom we must someday give an account. But here she was standing before the Lord of glory, the righteous judge of all the earth naked, who just moments earlier had been involved in sexual immorality. She stands before him guilty, a guilty, humiliated sinner, the object of scorn by the crowd. And yet Jesus gazes into her eyes lovingly and calls her madam. Not whore, sinner, reprobate, loser, ma'am. Lady. Look, we're done. I, I don't know what sin you're involved in this morning. Maybe it's adultery like this gal. I don't know. I do know there's mercy and forgiveness if you want it. I do believe the Holy Spirit placed this story here to teach us. That no matter what we're involved in, the Lord Jesus wants to forgive us. 
He wants to cleanse us. And he wants to draw close to us in fellowship. Now Satan is trying to tell you that you're too bad. I was telling first service, I was talking to one of our Sunday school teachers. Well, he's retired now, but he was talking about a young guy that uh, he had in his class who was nine at the time. And before class started, the young guy was there early. and So the teacher was talking to him about receiving Christ and getting saved because, you know, he had not done that. Made it clear he hadn't done that. And when the teacher pressed him to pray to receive Christ so that his sins would be forgiven, he said, I can't. Well, why not? I'm too bad a sinner. You're nine. <laughs> I'm too bad a sinner. Well, okay. All right. You know, all right. We, uh, okay. You know, what'd you do, steal your brother's Nintendo? I mean, come on. Uh, uh, all right, but uh, praise God that you're, you know, that's, you're, you're, you're thinking, you know, you're evaluating yourself. But um, it's a lot of people who are like that little boy. You encourage them to come to Jesus, and they, they just can't. They think they're too bad. He won't forgive them. And Satan's got them all twisted in their thinking, right? He's got them thinking, well, God's looking at me, looking down at me. He hates me. He said, you're a loser. You're, you're a reprobate. I want nothing to do. Get out of my sight. Nothing could be farther from the truth. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to whoever believes in him. Anybody can believe, right? Pharisees keep the law perfectly. Jesus, believe on me with all your heart. And you won't perish in hell, but have everlasting life. 1 Timothy 2, 4, God desires all men to be saved, all women to be saved, come to the knowledge of the truth. If you come to Jesus this morning and you confess your sins, you be open and naked to, to him, not hiding anything, Lord, get it all out on the table. He knows it anyways. You're not hiding anything from him. All things are open and naked in the eyes of him, to whom we must someday give an account. He knows what we're involved in. You're not fooling him. Today is the day to get it right. Come before him. Confess your sins. Right? He will forgive you. He wants to forgive you. But notice what he ends, adds at the end of his statement. Neither do I condemn you, but go and what? Sin no more. If he had just said, neither do I condemn you, go, that would have caused us to think, well, you know, sin's not that big a deal to the Lord. Hey, I guess I can sleep around or live with somebody out of wedlock. And, and it really doesn't really matter to him. He adds the go and sin no more because sin is a big deal. Just because God is merciful and wants to forgive our sin doesn't mean it didn't cost the Son of God everything to die in our place to pay for those sins. Sin is a big deal. In our culture, not so much. In the eyes of God, it always has been. First of all, it's an affront to His holiness. But secondly, it destroys the lives of people He made in His own image and loves with all His heart, who he, whom He died for. That's why Jesus said to this guy, go and sin no more. I forgive you. Go and sin no more. Guys, sin will destroy you Drugs, alcohol, we have an, an opium epidemic that is killing more people 
Every year, it's incredible. But sin will destroy you. It'll destroy your walk, your marriage, your family, your health. It's not a small thing. And God says, I love you too much to see you go on living in sin. It's only going to destroy you and shorten your life and keep you from everything I want to do in and through you. Come to me. I know everything about you. I know you're a sinner. Confess your sins. Receive the grace I am offering you and the Spirit's power to live the way I want you to live. Go and sin no more. And watch and see what I'm going to do in, in and through your life. The devil thinks, tries to get you to believe sin is pleasurable. Well, it is. Paul said that. If, we didn't, if it wasn't pleasurable, nobody would get involved in it. But its pleasure is short-lived, isn't it? It brings pleasure for a season. But in the end, it destroys. Because that's what the devil's all about. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And anything he tries to get you to do, it's not for you. It's to kill you. To remove you from this planet where you spend eternity separated from God. God give us grace. To understand how much he loves us. How he taught that through this woman. And so many other ways. God help us to understand that and run to him, not run away from him. Father, we thank you for your great love wherewith you loved us. We thank you, Lord, that you entered a world of sinners, guilty sinners, no doubt about it, offering us hope, forgiveness, and the promise of a new life. Father, we just pray that we as your children could walk in that newness of life, that the Spirit of God would strengthen us against sin, the flesh, and the devil's deceptions and temptations, that we would walk with you in holiness, purity, to honor you and to live lives that will be a blessing to us and those around us. Father, we thank you. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word in Jesus' precious name. Amen.